Hawks coming up the middle. Rosen, incomplete. Memphis holds and the Tigers take over on downs. Riley Ferguson, six touchdown passes. Anthony Miller, 185 yards receiving and two TDs. And Mike Norvell's Memphis Tigers get the upset of UCLA 48 to 45. What are you supposed to do with your life? Is there a career that was set out for you before you were born? Is there a path you're supposed to follow? Graduate school, go to college, go to grad school, be a lawyer, be a doctor, pay the bills and start the cycle all over again. That's where Jeff Calkins was in the 1990s when he found himself working a Washington DC law firm. He had a Harvard law degree and until that point he'd kind of followed the plan. But then something changed. Sports came to Jeff's life. And Jeff, despite all wisdom to the contrary, gave up his law degree to go be a journalist. And not just any journalist, Jeff was going to join the low rung of journalism. That notch occupied right above outdoor writers and just below every other writer on the planet. Jeff was going to write about sports. And to do it, he'd have to make his way through Alabama via Buffalo, India, and Australia. This week on the Get Lost podcast, Jeff Calkins from the Daily Memphian joins us to talk about his journey and how he found his way in life despite the prior plan. All right, there we go, there we go. Okay, so pretend you're hearing bumper music. Welcome to the Get Lost Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Sills, a writer for Travel Channel, National Geographic, Bassmaster Magazine, and a couple of other places. Today, I am here with a very special guest. He's a writer that I read religiously growing up, uh, maybe to my own detriment. His name is Jeff Calkins. He's an award-winning writer who's covered eight Olympics, the World Series, the Kentucky Derby, many Super Bowls, and everything in between. Jeff. Thanks for joining me. Good to be here, Joe. It's fantastic to have you. And where can people read your work right now today? Uh, right now today, they can go to the Daily Memphian, dailymemphian.com, uh, or I suppose they can follow me on Twitter at Jeff, G-E-O-F-F, to spell the right way, underscore Calkins, C-A-L-K-I-N-S, and follow me on Twitter or whatever else. But yeah, I, we, I, I, I for a long time, I was the columnist at the uh, Commercial Appeal, which is the, the newspaper in Memphis, and then the world is changing. And um, there's a new nonprofit digital uh, publication in Memphis called The Daily Memphian as people are trying to redefine how to do and figure out really how to pay for journalism in the new era. And um, so this, this cool new enterprise in Memphis called The Daily Memphian, I'm, I do that now. I want to get into that with you later because I think it's really cool um, what The Daily Memphian has done, uh, especially because of the situation at the commercial appeal. But before we get into that... Yep. Uh, the reason we have this podcast is for travel, and you are one of the most traveled people I've ever met. Jeff, you've been to 49 of the 50 states. I have been to 49 of the 50 states. That's 
that that is correct. I've been to forty nine of fifty states. I've been to eight Olympics. I've been uh, I've been around a little bit. Um, no, it's it's some of it's because of sports. Like in this, and I've I've occupied different. Certainly, I grew up in the Northeast. I'm from Buffalo originally. Uh, a lot of family all around New England. I'm one of nine kids, and so whatever you visit all of them through the Northeast, um, and then but then I've been in the Southeast for most of my sports writing career. Um, and then you go like, for example, I, the only time I went to Hawaii was Mike Tyson was training to fight Lennox Lewis in a, in a heavyweight, uh, fight. And it so happened that Mike Tyson's, um, training camp was in Hawaii and he had a media availability on what we didn't even know when it was going to happen. And so you had to be in Hawaii and then sort of wait to be summoned by Mike Tyson to have uh, one of the sort of quintessential um, soliloquies that Mike Tyson would go on. And we didn't really know when it would be or whatnot, but you'd hang out in Hawaii. It was on Maui. And, uh, and then you were summoned to his, to the, to the resort where he was staying and Mike held forth. And that was that. So that's when I, that's when I picked off Hawaii. My college roommate actually happens to be the mayor of Anchorage. And so uh, I went to visit him in Alaska and had a fabulous time in Alaska um, How does one become the mayor of Anchorage? I mean, I get it. They vote. But well, like, no, what, what, what you are is you're a Democrat first. And so you can't, he, this he's, like, he's, he's from San Francisco originally. His name is Ethan Berkowitz. And he, um, uh, he studied um, Antarctica. He went to Antarctica uh, immediately after college and realized there wasn't necessarily a career in that. So he went to law school and he ended up prosecuting um, poaching poachers and stuff in Alaska, sort of for fun. Let's have an adventure and whatnot. He liked the life there. He became a state rep, I think, first. And then what happens is he has actually run for governor. He's been the Democratic nominee for governor and for uh, their congressional seat. But it's very hard as Democrat to win in Alaska. Right. And so he then he said, what the heck, I'm going to try to be mayor of Anchorage. And so he wins and he is the uh, mayor of Anchorage. And... Um, has a, it's like it's a unbelievably fun job that he has. You worry about the, the 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 city and the issues of the city, but there's also some ceremonial parts that just seem fun to me. When I was there, he was whatever. You get, you know, different tribes give him whale blubber and stuff at ceremonies and whatnot, and he has a great time being the mayor of Anchorage. In addition to sort of all the, the all the all the real responsibilities that go with that job. That's crazy. You know, there's a mayor here in Tennessee who I. Loves to travel, and I think he would really like to have some whale blubber <laughs> over on the eastern part of the state. Right, yeah, right. So, um, but the only place that I have not been to for what is North Dakota. I have not been the one I've not picked. I've been to South Dakota, and I've seen Mount Rushmore, which I think, by the way, one of the great overrated, um, not worth the trips. Awful. It's awful. It is, so awful. It is just Trinketville, and yeah. it is it is one of the. It's funny because there are sports destinations that I think really live up to. Um, you go to Fenway Park for the first time; it is absolutely as great as you think it might be. Um, you go to Wimbledon for the first time; it is you can't quite believe that it's as magnificent as like, but it is, it's cause it's, it's small and it's intimate. And there's these, the, 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 the forget center court, you go to the courts that are all around and there they are, the greatest players in the world, 10 feet from you. And the strawberries are wonderful. I mean, you would think the strawberries, strawberries. and cream are so cliche that they couldn't be wonderful. Right? right. But they are the strawberries and cream at Wimbledon are fantastic. 
And um, so that's great. And then, but then there are places that are sort of, that are um, like Mount Rushmore, which is just not worth the trip. Um, but, and the, I grew up with next to Niagara Falls, and that is, Niagara Falls is lots of trinkets, particularly on the, on the Canadian side, lots of wax museums and, you know, uh, mediocre Chinese restaurants and, and stuff. clubs too, right? And, yes. <laughs> but the falls themselves, you take all the, the junk away, the falls themselves, so if you could imagine being an explorer back in the day, coming across, it's magnificent. Whereas in the end, Mount Rushmore, it, the very essence of Mount Rushmore is a man-made trinket thrown up there, sort of, you know, uh, carved out of stone. So, um, so anyway, I didn't mean to come in here and, d- and disparage South Dakota and Mount Rushmore, but I've, I've never found the reason to go to North Dakota, and I think I have to just make a trip to do it. There's a place called Teddy Roosevelt National Park. In North Dakota? In North Dakota. Worth the trip? Uh, I don't know. because <laughs> You've never been. I, I did the same thing you did. I went all across South Dakota. It was a serious mistake that we didn't take a right and go up to North Dakota, or a left, depending on which direction you're headed. It was a huge error. Yeah. Because you get to Mount Rushmore, and it's really not... It's not much of anything. It's not particularly big. It's, no, it's it's. It, I'm I'm sorry to all you people who are who who live and 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 make a, a living up there near Mount Rushmore. But no, it's not great. Um, and but North Dakota, what's the so so what's happened? What's what? It's the Teddy Roosevelt. What's Teddy called? Roosevelt National Park? And what do you know of it? Uh, I know that there are a lot of bison. Okay. I, I don't think it's very mountainous. It seems like it's a sort of Great Plains National Park as you would expect. Right. Uh, but I think there's some excellent camping, maybe some lakes huh. and things like that. So the next time I will get the there. Area, it, yeah, yeah I, I hope I will get there. I'm going to, I mean, it's my now plan. I have to check that off. So, but. So how did you get from the Northeast to the Southeast? So I grew up, uh, like I said, I was eight to nine kids uh, outside, growing up outside of Buffalo, New York in this crazily um, academically ambitious family. And I ended up, my parents were both physicians and I ended up, and then I had other older siblings were, were lawyers, and I sort of thought there were two paths in life. You could either be a doctor or a lawyer. I didn't realize wow. that you could be other things. And so, and I knew that uh, I didn't want to take organic chemistry and that I pass out easily. And so, doctor didn't seem to be the thing. So, I went to Harvard College and then I went to Harvard Law School. And as an aside, I will tell you that anyone who goes to law school because you can do anything with a law degree, misguided advice. What happens is you become a lawyer. And that you sh- if you want to become a lawyer, go to law school. But if you go as it's a general education that will teach you how to think, that's a load of hooey. So you became a lawyer of what? I was a lawyer. Um, I, was a, I worked at a big law firm in Washington, D.C. I actually worked at the law firm. Um, John Roberts, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, was there when I was there. He was a partner at the law firm when I was there. Um, so it was called at the time it was called Hogan and Hearts and now it's Hogan and Lovells, big, huge Washington DC law firm. And I ended up doing labor and employment work there, but, um, but it was not for me. I pretty much had to take a deep breath and will myself through, (sighs) all right, let's work for three hours. And of course you're, you're at that point, you're billing by six minute increments. And so you notice each six, like each six minutes is a work. And that is not true for everybody. Some people love being lawyer. I I was not one of those people. And so I think a lot of people can relate to that. I think a lot of people in life can relate to, I I really, this is, I really think figuring out how, what to be and, and how to make a living that is both has an impact on, on the world, um, that pays the bills, um, that, that is, has, 
entertaining. Like those are those are all high. You want to have some kind of a. To me, you want to have some impact on the greater good. You want to make enough money to pay your bills, and um, you want to be entertained at least. You want to enjoy it to some extent. Um, I think that's ha- it's hard to check off those three boxes. Right. And, and so you weren't enjoying your job as a lawyer. Oh, I was making enough to pay my bills. And, uh, but I didn't feel like I was having a positive impact in law and I did not like it. And so I wrote to 200, 300 newspapers and, uh, I said, I didn't know for sure that I wanted to be a sports columnist, but I'd done some journalism in college and I thought I might. And when I was 12, if you'd asked me what I wanted to be, I would have said, I wanted to be that guy who has his picture in the paper who writes about sports. And, um, and so I said, let's give this a try. The only job I got was a job in Anniston, Alabama, um, covering high school sports for a summer internship for 12 weeks, um, making $225 a week. I had just gotten engaged, um, so I took it. How did you pull that off? Uh, you know, it's funny because I'm now no longer married to her, but we are pals, and it is to her enormous credit that she she had just graduated from Duke. She was uh, uh, working at the same law firm when we met, and she agreed to go to Anniston, Alabama. And so we were there for two years and then we were in Miami for two years where I covered the Florida Marlins. And then, um, it so happened that the, the Memphis newspaper was looking for a sports columnist and I applied and I got it and I've been here ever since. So I think the kids call that a come up. Is the kid, the kids call that a come up? Come up. Yeah. The come up, a come up being, being from Anniston, Alabama, which I mean, I work in fishing and I've never heard of Anniston, Alabama. Oh, I covered a Bassmasters Classic uh, at the Birmingham Convention Center. Uh, oh. a, a, that was one of the things I covered there. That's, that's one thing we have in common there. <laughs> How many Bassmasters Classics have you covered? Six. Really? Yeah. They're extraordinary events. Now, when you cover a Bassmasters Classic, well, I, what I did is that I think I, I don't know if I could, they would. They'd bring the boats in on trailers yeah. in the in the auditorium, like a basketball arena, and then in like a basketball arena, and there was they would have coolers, whatever, on the boats, and they would dramatically pull the bass out and weigh them. Totally, and and you were cheering for weighing. That's what you were cheering for. It was you were cheering for the weigh-in, and it's an extraordinary American event. Um, it's weird. It's do you go like out and but but do the real because I'm obviously not an outdoors writer. Do the real people who cover it do they go out on into the yeah onto the they'll they'll go out in a boat and follow the people around as they fish and then are you also there for the weigh-in as well? They or come you, back. Yeah, it's a full day. They start before dawn. Come in, you know, cover people in the water. Usually, shoot pictures because most of them also are photographers. Do people do people live tweet it now? Like, can you get? Oh, oh yeah. my goodness, Joe! Well, give me a name of a, a bass fisherman. Um, Kevin Van Dam. Kevin Van Dam just pulled in a five like five pound or whatever. Like, yeah. you, there's live they tweeting live of this tweet stuff. It. They stream it so you can see the whole thing. There's like you know legit cameras following these guys around. Oh, I see. I mean, so this year's classic was in Knoxville, and um, as a as a Memphis native it was a little bit hard for me to go there mm-hmm. and um i was actually in the people bowels. may not understand from outside of memphis how how much tennessee is not just one place uh, that, that's true yeah <laughs> i think you may not understand that tennessee i didn't understand i would have thought tennessee was just one place all you people down there are all the same and all you read and it could not be less true no it was really awkward it was in march and i'm in the bowels of the vols basketball arena yeah it's all orange and there's wraps and graphics. There's orange, everything, everything. And I'm streaming the Memphis Tigers game on my computer in the in literally like what is probably their media room. Right. 
it was kind of a weird experience. But going back to the spectacle of it, yeah. a local guy ended up winning. Oh. And he wins, and it's like a three-day event, and at the end of it, he wins. He has the most weight. The arena at this point is packed. There's it's like, it, That place holds 18,000 or 18, something? 18,000 And it was that many people were there? It, if it wasn't completely sold out, it was close to it. It was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And the local guy wins it, and his family's on stage, and they're crying, and there's music, and it's... It's, it's all also wrapped in patriotism. They tend, at least the one I went yeah. there, I recall some miniature Statue of Liberty was involved, particularly when I went to in Birmingham. It's all, it's a very patriotic affair as well. There's a uh, lot of that. I have to be kind of careful, you know, a kid with long hair walking around. I mean, you know. People. Right. <laughs> right. One of the things careful. that I actually think is, is I only recently discovered, I don't know how I stumbled upon it. I think the, you could do a whole travel channel around sporting events and different sporting events and what matters to people and how they're but i was the the national sport of afghanistan do you know are you familiar with a sport involving a headless goat wait no please yes tell no us more no this is what this podcast is about. <laughs> no no I, i'm fast I, I don't have it in front of me or i'd look it up but it's with the name of it i think it begins with a b and it involves a a uh it's not it's sort of like basketball but people are a blend between basketball, um, polo, and the butcher shop because it's a headless goat that and people on horseback fight over the headless goat. And in the end, you want to pick up the headless goat and drag it and put it in a circle, uh, a certain circle for I think it's team oriented. So in and I don't know if it's an individual sport or not. What, I couldn't quite tell. What do you win? Do you win the goat? I think no. I think no. No. I actually I saw people walking home with different sorts of prizes. You might win um, just a rug, or you might win like they, they had all sorts of uh, all kinds of interesting prizes. You don't win the goat, and the goat's obviously the big loser in the whole enterprise. But um, clearly, it, I, surely check this out on YouTube. It is there. I'm not making this up, and um, it is a headless goat, and that is dragged around. And in one, I've seen. Sometimes it's dragged into a circle that is just drawn on the ground. I saw one where it was you would deposit the goat in like this giant circular bathtub thing that um, okay. you, in fact, would, would almost dive off of your horse with the headless goat into the... Like, There's no water in the bathtub, but into this, into this giant empty sink. Like you're dunking. Yeah, like you're dunking the goat. It's like you're dunking the goat. Maybe it's, you could start a show about this. You could be the Anthony Bourdain. I think there of, probably is a show about this out there, about the weird sports or whatever. There's, of course, there's nothing weird about it. They would think that our sports are weird for sports, right? I mean, it's, it's um, what matters to people. What matters to us is young men putting a ball through a cylinder, which is curious. What matters other places, it's young men kicking a ball into a net. What matters other places, it's young men or women hitting balls over net over the net. What matters other places is, I mean, it's, it's um, the way that we divert ourselves is interesting to me. Well, that's like going to Central America and you see the Mayan um, ball game courts. Right. You know, it's a lot like basketball, only the losing team dies. Only the, yeah, very similar, very similar, right? It's pretty much. Instead of having people on Twitter call you names, you, right, you die. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. So, uh, but anyway, I urge anyone to look that up. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of your global travels because I know you, you mentioned previously that you've lived in India uh, and you lived in Australia and a couple other places around the world. How is that different from the world you grew up in in New York? Uh, it's funny. Like you, you say, New York, I lived in Buffalo and Buffalo considers itself 
Midwestern, really. And it is a Midwestern sensibility more than a, certainly we, we didn't consider ourselves part of New York, really. So, people, so you're more like Buffalo, Buffalo, like Memphis well, is Memphis. Not B- really Memphis, Memphis, Memphis Buffalo is like Cleveland or Detroit or Pitt. Buffalo is like that. It's a smaller version of that um, as opposed to, um, as opposed to, in the same way that, that here, that up north we thought of Tennessee as one place. Now that I'm down here, people say, oh, you're from New York, and they think of me as being from Manhattan. Now, right. I, I did spend a year in Manhattan. I've lived in Manhattan, but I lived in, outside of Buffalo, New York. We lived on 20 acres and had sheep, chickens. I had a pet raccoon when I was growing up. I had a very different... I did not have a Manhattan lifestyle when I was um, growing up at all. So, um, Did your goats have heads on them? Our goats were... We didn't even sheep. We, didn't, we only had a goat briefly. Go, um, oh, is, why is that? Goats, goats game? are goats are smart, and so they're a pain in the ass. And um, they, they honestly, pigs. We had pigs briefly too. They escape, and they're very smart. And they're kind of a, where sheep, as the name suggests, you know, don't be a sheep. Like that, sheep are kind of dumb and easy. And um, so we had sheep and horses and uh, chickens and 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 whatnot. And then I did. I had a raccoon and. We had a monkey briefly. That didn't work out. But um, but so I had a different life growing up than your than a New Yorker. Um, I liked Buffalo, and in some ways, Memphis is. Um, you wouldn't think I, I call Buffalo. There's I call Buffalo our sister city. I live here in Memphis now, and I call Buffalo our sister city because there are cities in this country that um, that are they're not the booming towns. They're not the um, chic towns. They're not the, they're, and a lot of people live in them. And, um, and Buffalo is like that. Buffalo was the place where people would, you know, it's not the end of the world, but I can see it from there. Um, kind of thing. It, it, Michael Bennett, um, great choreographer who did a chorus line. Um, he grew up in Buffalo and there's a line in chorus line that says, I thought about suicide, I don't know the exact line, but then I realized I, I live in Buffalo, so it would be redundant. And that was, we knew that line. Like in Buffalo, you know that so line. So there's like self-deprecating thing going a certain, on there. Yeah, it, there was a, they had a beer that was brewed in Buffalo called Talking Proud Beer. And so there was this, the when everyone else is ripping you, there's a certain flip side to it too. Like there was a, there's a real fierce pride in Buffalo as well. Exactly. Like we can say that about ourselves, but you right. can't. Yes, exactly right. And, um, and there is like, there's a certain in Buffalo, there's just from enduring the snow, there's sort of a, we're tougher. We're, you know, we're Bills fans who jump through flaming tables. We're like, we're, we're a different tougher breed than the rest of you. So there's a pride in Buffalo as well. Um, I found it to be a wonderful place to grow up, um, but then I went, to, you know, from Boston to, to for college and law school. I worked in D.C. I uh, and so I've, I've, yeah, I've, I've sort of lived and worked in in many different places, and I find myself more comfortable in places like Mem- in the end in places like Memphis and Buffalo than in places like uh, Boston and. D.C. and Manhattan and whatnot. I like the major cities. I like to go there and explore yes. and see everything. But when it comes down to it, I think the real stuff happens in middle America or in a mid-sized city just about anywhere in the world. Um, you're going to get quicker access to the more authentic people. Not saying they don't exist in New York and right. London and things like that, but there's a lot of people there who are just in such a rat race and they have to project an image for their career or whatever that sometimes it's hard to find an authentic people as a traveler. 
Right. Because you don't have time to get to know people. Right. You just kind of go to a coffee shop or restaurant and meet who you meet. Right. Um, but in the small, well, there are hordes of tourists. You are at those places. You are. You are. You are yeah. part of hordes of tourists. I mean, let's be honest. As much real stuff happens, or more, in New York, or real stuff happens everywhere, right? Real, real stuff happens everywhere. Um, I, I think you're right. As a traveler, um, it's probably easier to find yourself in the, into the real stuff as opposed to just shuffling from tourist attraction to tourist attraction in a place like in a place like Memphis. Um, I, um, I. Uh, yeah, there's a there can be a cruise ship mentality when you go to a, a big city and you're just seeing of things. Exactly. Um, but um, but I mean, listen, I I one of the things I've learned is that I really do believe my mom. Um, my mom gave a sermon once. She was asked to give a sermon at our church, and the story that she told, she likes. I don't know why this. Maybe it was, maybe, it was, maybe she was she was also president of the school board, so it may have been a graduation. But the story was about it's a hokey story about a uh, young couple that is um, shopping for a house. And they walk up, and there's an old elderly couple in this house next door, and they're on their rocking chairs, and they walk up and they say, uh, so what's the neighborhood like? And the uh, older folks say, well, what's it like where you're from? This is a hokey story. It's from my mother. She's now 95, so you have to bear with me here. <laughs> um, so, uh, and the, 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 the young couple says, oh, miserable neighborhood. Can't wait to get the heck out of there. People are mean. They're petty, backbiting, backstabbing. We just can't wait to get a new start somewhere else. And then the older couple says, well, it's about like what it is here. And then in the next day, of course, a different young couple comes up and same thing happens. And what's the neighborhood like? And the older couple says, what's it like? Where are you from? And, and they say, oh, we're just heartbroken to leave. It's just the nicest people. They're, they embrace us. They're warm. They're uh, it just breaks our heart to leave, but but we were transferred for work. And he says, of course, that's what it's like here. And I do think there is, as hokey as that may be, I was happy in Anniston. I was happy in Manhattan. I was happy in Miami, Florida. Um, and I'm very happy in Memphis. And I do think there's a sense of, of what you bring to it matters. So it's your own outlook on it that can really affect your day-to-day. As much as someone who spent their day-to-day for a while in a at a desk job, Granted, you were a lawyer, you were right. probably doing well, uh, but you were counting down the minutes till the end of the day. Yeah. Well, I think it's this, I, I think it's, listen, I think what you do and how you spend your time matters, whether no matter where you are. I think everything won't be satisfying to everybody. And I think that those are the important questions. Whether I live in, in Buffalo or whether I live in New York or whatever in San Francisco or whether I live in India, it's, it's, um, it matters how you choose to spend your time in, in the time that we are allotted in this life. Um, but I think those decisions, it matters less as to whether you're do, making those decisions in Buffalo or in India or in Miami or whatever else. And so I could have been an unhappy lawyer in any of those places, or I could have been a happy person who goes out and talks to people and writes down what they have to say and tell their stories in any of those places. Um, and so I think, I think those, and I think what happens is, is that as we become increasingly coastal as a society, more and more, I have, I'm because I have eight siblings, I also have 30 nieces and nephews. What happens is they graduate from college and they tend to, they go to San Francisco or they go to Boston, New York and, and they ignore the places like, and, and, and they ignore the places like Memphis and, and Buffalo. And, um, and I think, um, and I think what they're ignoring then is the opportunity. 
I think you can have an impact in smaller places in a way that you can't necessarily at bigger places. So that kind of leads into my next question, and I guess I've got two things for you here. One, as a a northerner that comes to Memphis in the 1990s, it's a little bit of a different atmosphere than the now, a little bit less worldly place than it is today. Um, What was your reception from the locals, and how long did it take you to feel at home? Well, it's one of the things that strikes you is um, the places are. Well, I had this vision that that Memphis would be. Uh, you know, I'd seen the firm, so I thought it was going to be this hierarchical city that was hard to hard to penetrate. Right, Wilford Brimley's running around trying to murder you. <laughs> right, and that's not true at all. Like uh, the truth is, is that Memphis is a warm and easy place to to, and and it's the kind of place where if you show any inclination to, um to want to be here and get involved, Memphis wraps its arms around you. And so I didn't find, have any problem being welcomed, even as a Yankee, um, which I clearly am. Um, now, I also had a job that was a little more public than some, and so that right. probably helped. So, Your I mean, picture was in the paper. My picture was in the paper and You whatnot. did it. But the, uh, the flip side then is also when I wrote something that people disagreed with, it was... It was go home, you're from the Yankee. Like there, it was also easier to dismiss what I had to say because I'm not from here. Like that, and you still, 25 years in, 23 years in, I still hear that a little bit. But basically, really warmly welcomed. The other thing that does strike you is, is that this country is not one all one place. Like there are huge differences. And just I'm, the first weekend I was here, we went to the symphony. And during intermission, um, we were talking to the folks next to us, and they asked, "Have you found a church home?" Well, you could go. To, you could go to the symphony, or you go to anywhere. You could go up north for events for time after time, and you would never be asked. It would not be one of the first hundred questions you are asked. That's a heavy question. Have you found a church home down here? That's a kind of question. Well, they're just trying to. They're they're trying to say, "Hey, come on to Bellevue Baptist, or come on to uh, Second Pres, or come on to like there." People think. Churches are more important here um, as a more important part of the community. And that's just a question that you would not be asked um, in Buffalo. That's different. Um, here's another difference. You don't see, you may not even find this shocking, but you drive around up north, they don't have fried chicken and gas stations. Like That's uh, a crime. <laughs> they that's don't a have, crime. They don't have fried chicken and gas stations. They don't have uh, fried apple pies in uh, gas stations. And, and you go through... Mississippi and practically every single place is fried chicken and, and fried apple pies. And so the, it is striking. We all watch the same TV and we listen to the same music. And But when you travel, you realize how different it is. Yeah. Does that make you appreciate the, the what you have more? And and does it open your mind to other people's point of view? We, we had one of your colleagues, Gary Parrish, on. I know yeah. you all had a radio show together for a while and didn't kill each other, which is amazing. Um. But his perspective was totally changed as a kid from North Mississippi that suddenly finds himself in Orange Mound, in Binghamton, in South Memphis, in Westwood, like these really rough places for those of you that don't live locally in Memphis, really, really rough neighborhoods. You can go back to episode one and hear that. Does that change your perception because you come from a rural background, even though you've seen things? Yeah, I I sort of lived in a suburban Buffalo, but yes, it's you live in Memphis, and I have three sons now and one, my eldest son goes to Northwestern and um, he is struck by how much more racially diverse Memphis is than, than, than 
than Evanston, Illinois is. Um, and it's just true. It's, um, we are a majority black city, but it's also so much part of the narrative here and the history here yeah. and the struggle here. Um, there is, I mean, it's truly one of the most moving places that I, that I think you can go in this country is the first time you see the Lorraine Motel and see that wreath on that balcony and realize what happens there. It, it brings you short. It brings you up short to see it for the first time. Never mind you go through the museum, which is a wonderful National Civil Rights Museum. Um, but literally that first time you see that balcony, it's right there. And in suburban Buffalo, where you know, I, I, I went to school with, we had 500 kids in our graduating class, public high school there, in, in largely Catholic sort of suburban Buffalo. There were maybe two black kids in my graduating class. And we all, I, like I thought this was in the, 70s yeah i you know they should go to prom together like those there's a girl like i mean that's that's how you had that like we just sort, sort of built-in bias that i you totally didn't totally absolutely yeah. built-in bias that i didn't realize there were there were there were no african-americans on my high school to speak of the two there were as far as i knew no jews at my high school um it was a catholic white largely catholic not entirely um white suburban place and and there are by the way we down here in Memphis, we people have self segregated in a way that is not becoming and that is, um, that is, that is, I think, destructive. Um, but it's so I'm not saying by any stretch that we have it figured out here, true. but you can't miss it here, like you can't miss the um, we're certainly grappling with it here in ways, um, that I think it's easier to ignore in other places. Something I think that's positive is I see generationally that that segregation is separating and the awareness and the the bias that you have you become more aware of that and you can work on that and and fix that so um episode three we had uh, a guy on named malik the martian who's mm-hmm. photojournalist for the tri-state defender and he works at a rock climbing gym in soulsville wonderful place it's that's it's, uh, it's, it's, it's you've a, been there we, memphis yeah, rocks. absolutely memphis rocks it's yeah. a tremendous place yeah. super super like diverse people from all backgrounds just come together, and I think that's a positive. Um, talking about, you know, the community, as somebody who has a, a major voice in the community and you have for decades, what is the responsibility of a local journalist to that community, and does that tie into the Daily Memphian? I mean, do you feel like because the commercial appeal became this sort of entity that was very corporate and owned by out-of-town interests, you lost that mission? Well, I think, I mean, I, and I, I think to make it relevant to, to people outside of Memphis too, the larger struggle is, is that, um, journalism, people say people don't read the newspaper anymore and that's why newspapers aren't floored. Well, that's not really it at all. People still read, they read the digital editions. The stories that you read on Facebook or wherever else come from somewhere. And it's not from Facebook, by the way, they, they, someone has to be a working journalist have to be out there writing those stories. And, um, but it's because once upon a time, Every local newspaper had a monopoly of advertising. And if you wanted to buy a house or buy a car or sell a house or sell a car or get a job, or you had to advertise in the newspaper. And they charged monopoly rates. And they could, in Memphis, they could support a newspaper that was 250 journalists. And, and apart from Gannett and, and what they've done to journalism, which I don't think is great, um, but that problem that now those ads are gone, they're all on the web, 
Um, and you now newspapers get pennies on the dollar, and that now the same newspaper that once had 250 journalists in Memphis um, has 30-some journalists in Memphis. Jurassic and and, and so dramatic. And some of that is the evils of Gannett, but a lot of it's just literally the problem that everyone is, is, is coping with. And no matter where you are, whether it's in San Francisco or whether it's Seattle or anywhere else, and so there's no model that works. We don't know a model that works. It works for the New York Times because of the the they have this vast readership and reach, sure. and it works for the Wall Street Journal. People pay for that journalism, but generally local journalism they do not. And so the reason that Daily Memphian matters is apart from what it does here in Memphis is that it's a different model, and it's basically it's nonprofit. Every penny goes back into the journalistic enterprise. It's funded, yes, there's subscriptions, um, but it's also, um, uh, there's philanthropy that is involved to support it as well, um, and advertising. And and so no one's trying to make a buck off it. They don't have to support a corporate headquarters in Arlington, Virginia, or whatever. They, um, it's, it is a public service. And so, and, and it matters because if you look around at a lot of the stories, if you look at the Flint water crisis, that was uncovered by a local journalist. If you look at the Michigan State sexual, um, the, the doctor who was sexually abusing gymnasts, that was discovered by, that was uncovered by local journalism. Local journalism, if it goes away, it's great that everyone's writing about uh, national politics and Trump and whatever else, but, but someone has to be covering state houses and city government and whatnot. And so the reason that I'm thrilled to be part of the Daily Memphian is that this model, whether hopefully it works in Memphis, but honestly is something that can be duplicated in other cities as they struggle to, to, to find a place for local journalism. It's a really interesting site, and it's, it's really encouraging to see. I know the quality of news that I see uh, here in Memphis has, has been excellent since the Daily Memphian launched, and I'm not shilling for that. I'm just a subscriber. I don't have a secret deal uh, with them. That'd be great if they want to sponsor this podcast. <laughs> I'll mention it. We're, we're all for that. Um, but speaking of local journalism, Jeff has to go. He's got an interview with Penny Hardaway coming up. We'll just mic drop that there name. You go. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for coming on, Jeff. I think we should have you back on sometime to talk about your experiences. A uh, total pleasure. Uh, and I'm certainly when I get to North Dakota, I will check back in with an update. Please do. Um, and if you don't mind, send us a photo so we can show people. All right. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Talking to myself again, wondering if this traveling is good. Is there something better doing we'd be doing if we could? And all the stories we could tell. And if this all blows up and goes to hell, well, I hope that we can sit back on a bed in some motel. Sing you all the stories we can tell. Remember that guitar, that museum in Tennessee, name played on the glass, brought back 20 melodies. And the scratches on her face Told of every time he fell Singing every story he could tell And all the stories it could tell And I bet you it's still 
just like a bell And I hope that we can sit back on a bed in some hotel Sing you all the stories we can tell Trucking dang near every night Singing for your living Beneath the brightly colored lights And if you ever wonder Why you ride this carousel We do it for the stories we can tell And oh, the stories we can tell And if this all blows up and goes Sit back on a bed in some motel Sing you all the stories